if you're new here, we are in the middle of a series where we're going through the book of Nehemiah, uh, pretty much verse by verse, if not theme by theme. And we've kind of seen some interesting things thus far in the book of Nehemiah, haven't we? Um, the book of Nehemiah is interesting because it starts out with this kind of, this empathy that Nehemiah feels for his people who are in exile. They're in, they're in uh, Babylon, who, which is now Persia f- uh, for them and at this point in the book of Nehemiah. And, and they're in exile, and, and God has promised to, to deliver them, to, to bring them back home to their promised land uh, in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah has this overwhelming burden uh, to be used of God, to, to, to be a part of that, to, to see that happen. And we've said that this book in Nehemiah is really interesting because even though it's in the Old Testament, uh, there's a lot of parallels for us today as we build the kingdom of God, as God calls us to be a part, to be his hands and feet in building the kingdom through our lives. And so we see a lot of parallels in how Nehemiah builds the walls of Jerusalem, restores the city walls, and then how God calls us as his people to restore the broken down walls that are all around us. The interesting thing about this is that we, we see from the beginning of Nehemiah that there's this, there's this absence of rest, this absence of, of peace that comes from knowing God and this, this peace that comes when we are abiding in Him. And, and so we, we see that there's a striving for that rest that, that they had uh, that was once theirs in the garden. And we see the Israelites striving for that more and more. And it's really the centerpiece of this whole thing. Uh, a lot of people think it's about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the book of Nehemiah, but it's actually about God rebuilding his hearts and calling them back home to himself. And so this morning, we're picking up in Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5 uh, is interesting because in Nehemiah chapter 4, we've seen the Israelites are starting to build the walls, and as they're starting to build the walls, imagine this, they meet resistance, they meet opponents with Sambalot and Tobiah. And, uh, and, you know, lots, they have, and we saw they have enemies all around them that were trying to tear down the walls. They're trying to keep them from building uh, the walls of Jerusalem back. And they're really afraid of Israel's God because they've seen him act before in history. And so we see that they meet opponents, but they, they sustain and they, they, they trust God and they continue to the work. And they, they have a trowel in one hand and they have a sword in the other as they're building the kingdom. This week, there's opposition as well, but the opposition doesn't come from the the outside of the walls this week, rather the opposition comes from the inside of the walls in Nehemiah chapter 5. You see what's happening is there's, there's oppression, there's injustice among God's people within the community of the Israelites. And Nehemiah once again stops the work and he says we've got to deal with this. We've got to deal with what's going on today. So uh, today I'm actually, when we stand and read God's word here in just a moment, we're actually going to read Micah chapter 6 verse 8. Because I think Micah 6.8 has informed what Nehemiah does in Nehemiah 5. You see, Micah was written about 250 years prior to the book of Nehemiah. So the Israelites would have had this, this scroll in their possession. They would have known what the prophet Micah had written to them. And, and so really what we see is that uh, Nehemiah 5 is kind of the narrative of Micah 6.8 played out in real time. So you guys tracking with me? You got that? Let's stand and read Micah 6, 8 together. This is the word of the Lord. Micah 6, 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, it can also be translated as mercy, 
to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we think a lot about the great commandment that's in the Gospels where we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we think about the fact that you call us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we think a lot about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them, remembering that you're with us to the end of the age. But the church doesn't think quite as much about the great requirement that's found in Micah 6 8. Where, Father, your heart calls us to, to do justice, to love mercy and kindness, and to walk humbly with you. Father, would the words of Nehemiah and Micah 6 and the parable of the Good Samaritan, would they marinate in our hearts today? Would we see that, that this is not another to-do list? This isn't a thing to check off to make ourselves feel good. But this is your heart inside of your people, and this is how it's lived out. So God, would you show us that this morning? Would you convict our hearts? Would you not lead us to a place of guilt? Because we know that comes from the enemy. But would you convict us in the places we need to be convicted? So that we could, we could see and savor the person of Jesus a little more clearly because of our time together this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. It's interesting, in Micah 6, 8, uh, there's a context around Micah. And, and any time that we read a selection of scripture, it's always important to look at the context of what comes before it and what comes after it. Because if not, we're going to be tempted to twist it into what we want to make it say, right? So Micah 6, 6, and 7, it's, it's, it's interesting because Micah has indicted the Israelites. He's a prophet. He's telling them, hey, you're, you guys are sinners. You need to repent. And so the people kind of respond with this tone where they're like, okay, Micah, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to, uh, do you want us to offer a, a young calf up? I mean, so that's a pretty good sacrifice, right? Or how about a thousand rams? Or how about thousands of rivers of incense? And he says, no, 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 no. Here's what the Lord requires of you. To do justice. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You see, the, the issue with this statement in Micah chapter 6, 8, is that the Israelites would have heard this, and they would have immediately felt powerless over their situation. They would have felt like you and I do a lot of times when we come up to God's word in, in the Bible, and we, we, we just think, I really can't do that. And so we're tempted to kind of minimize what God's word says, where we can attain it, where we can kind of jump over that bar, or we just disregard it altogether. And I would propose that neither of those solutions is what God calls us to. You see, Micah 6.8 is really a description about the character and nature of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who has served justice on our behalf. It's Jesus who has extended mercy on our half. It's Jesus that has humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, as the Bible says, on our behalf. And so what we see in Micah chapter 6, 8 is a picture of the gospel, a picture of the coming Messiah that will come and do these things for God's people. And I would propose this, that our activity for God, so we're called to do mercy, we're called to do justice, we're called to walk humbly, we're called to do these things, but our activity for God flows out of our identity in Christ. Our activity for God, for Christ, flows out of our identity in Christ. We've got to always remember that because if we don't remember this, church, what happens is, is we have another to-do list that doesn't get done 
and we feel like God's mad at us. The work is finished. The cross, Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. Now, he didn't mean that his kingdom was completely built. He meant that the condemnation that comes against sin was finished. That's done away with. The guilt is done away with. And so now we can operate, we can obey God out of this motive of love, that God loves us, and therefore we do justice and we walk humbly with God because it's actually his heart that's alive in us. It's, 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 it's his acts of justice, his acts of mercy that is alive in and through his people. And it's an invitation for us to just see and savor Jesus and to walk in him. So here's my question as we get going today. What does the heart of God look like in the life of man? What does the heart of God look like in the life of man? Because if you're a Christian in here or you're not a Christian, uh, here's what happens when someone becomes a follower of Christ. The scriptures say that he has to take our old heart, which is a heart of stone, he has to remove that because it's, it's lifeless, it's dead. There's, there's nothing good in it and he has to give us a new heart. A heart of flesh, a heart that loves him, a heart that's moldable and shapeable, that's in tune with the heart of God. And that's what he does. And so the work, the, the life of a Christian, God's work is to shape us more into the image of Jesus. And so for us, I think the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah 5 specifically, describes what the heart of God looks like in the life of man. So let's get into it today. Uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is this, is the heart of God looks like uh, the heart of God looks like this in the life of man. First, it hears the cries of the oppressed. It hears the cries of the oppressed. I'm going to read a Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 for us here. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were, there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is of the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And Nehemiah responds in verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. So what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7? Well, there's sin inside the city walls. You know, a lot of times I'm tempted to think that the worst things in, in uh, the, the worst sin in the world is outside of the city walls, right? It's in the world. Well, here we see firsthand that sometimes the worst sin is on the inside of the walls, right? Sometimes the worst sin is on the inside of our hearts and it's in the inside of our churches and the inside of our bodies, Right? We see that the, 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 the worst sin here, it's, I mean, sin is so strong. I mean, the, the, the potency of it is that the work has to stop. There's injustice, there's oppression against God's very own people. So what's going on? Well, they need grain. Why would they need grain? Well, they need grain because they've, one, there's a famine, and B, they've all quit their jobs to build this wall, right? So, I mean, there's, 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 a, there's an issue going on. They're working hard on the wall and in the fields, and they don't have any food. So, well, they've got to eat. 
So what do they do? Well, they begin mortgaging their fields. So I want you to, if, if, if you're unfamiliar with what mortgaging a field might look like, think about Monopoly. Anybody a fan of the game Monopoly in here? Whenever you have to mortgage your property because the game is almost over, and I've seen this happen to a lot of people I've played against before. I mean, I'd like to say that I'm pretty good at Monopoly. Maybe not. Maybe you want to give me your best shot someday. But, you know, whenever I'm about to beat someone, typically what happens is they start mortgaging all of their stuff. And then, oh, man, I land on Park Place, right? It's like a $450 rent. And I don't have to pay it because it's mortgaged. Well, what's happening with the Israelites is they've mortgaged their fields, meaning they cannot use them. Well, the very thing that they need needs to come from those fields, but because they've mortgaged them, they cannot raise the grain that they need to eat. So there's, there's this oppression that's happened. They're, they've borrowed money for taxes, so the taxes from the Persians are so strong, they're so heavy, the burdens are, they've had to borrow money from other Jews to pay the taxes. Well, it's not a bad thing to borrow money, but the, the, the Jews that have lent the money have charged them uh, such a ridiculous interest rate that they can't afford it. So they're in their perpetu- this perpetual state of poverty. They can, they can never seem to get out of it. And so there's this, there's the, one part of the body is taking advantage of the other part of the body to serve itself. And anytime this happens, church, this happens, this happens all the time with God's people, right? Or we take advantage of someone else for our good and they pay for it. Anytime this happens, it's very much like cancer in a human body, right? Anytime one part of the body takes kind of advantage over another part of the body, it's a cancerous kind of thing. It kills the body. So we see they borrowed this money, they've exacted interest. And you know, the interesting thing about money, I'll just say this really quick, is that in the scriptures, you know, you hear a lot of people say that, that it's, that it's always bad to borrow money or it's, or, you know, or some people don't really know what to think. When the scriptures in the Old Testament, it just, the Bible forbids uh, charging interest uh, to other believers, especially that those are, are poor in this, in this situation. So we see them di- directly disobeying, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 19 or 20, and they would have known this word. And see, the money wasn't the problem, though. The money wasn't the problem for the more wealthy Jews, The love of money was the problem for the more wealthy Jews. They saw an interest, they saw something that could serve themselves, so they they threaded that needle and began to oppress the people, the very people that were building the walls that were protecting them. See, it's it's a terrible thing, and it doesn't stop there. The oppression gets so bad that the more impoverished Jewish people are having to force their children into slavery. This This is real. Because they couldn't pay, and then All of a sudden, you hear this outcry from the people to Nehemiah. They say, it's not in our power to help. Nehemiah, we can't do anything. We can't get ourselves out of this. The oppression is too heavy. We can't fix this one, Nehemiah. And what happens within Nehemiah? Nehemiah is a picture of Jesus in Nehemiah 5 right here. This anger is kind of kindled within him. And, and if you look at the Hebrew, the word anger there, it actually mean, it literally means that he was burning down on the inside. He was furious. There was this righteous anger that was coming out of Nehemiah internally. He was so frustrated with the oppression that was coming against God's people, the injustice that was coming against God's people. And then he says, he says something like this. He says, I, I, so I took counsel within myself. What does that mean? Well, I think he was grieving within himself. He didn't want to respond in anger. He was grieving. He was lamenting within himself the fact that there was sin 
within the, with the, the camp of the Israelites against one another. The very thing that God had rescued and redeemed them from, right? I mean, God redeems them out of slavery in Egypt. And what are they doing? They're, they're, they're putting each other in bondage. The very thing that God has rescued them from. They're putting one another in bondage. And what we see is that the fabric of this shalom, this peace that God has called his people to is beginning to tear apart at the seams. It's beginning to rip. And something has to be done or they're going to be right back in exile again. The fabric of shalom is ripping. Church, I would propose that all around us, the fabric of shalom is ripping. It's tearing at the seams. What do you mean, Ryan? We live in the suburbs. We live in Gwinnett County. The fabric of shalom is ripping. It's tearing apart. It's the reason why there are over 500 orphans in Gwinnett County and 50 foster homes. The fabric of shalom is ripping. It's the reason why most of the hotels in Gwinnett County have turned into extended stay hotels that charge a ridiculous rate for people that live paycheck to paycheck. The fabric of shalom is ripping. It's ripping all around us. And my question is this, do we have the ears to hear the cries of the oppressed? Can we hear it? I propose there's two things, two, two frequencies that we're tone deaf to when it comes to the cries of the oppressed. Because Nehemiah enters into the people's story. He's the governor of Judah in the, in, in the Persian you know, uh, economy of things. He's, he's the governor, and he, so he's the highest in the land. But he can still hear the cries of the oppressed. He's not raised himself and exalted himself so high that he can't hear the cries of the lowest in the kingdom. He's not too far above them. He can hear the cries of the oppressed. So where is the fabric of shalom ripping? What are we doing? Uh, how are we uh, tone deaf to the frequencies of, of, of the, the, the cries around us? I would say the first one is this, is we have selective hearing. We have selective hearing. You know, I have, a, I have four kids uh, most of you know that because I talk about them usually about every week. Love them to death. Uh, my, my second born, his name's Caden, and Caden, uh, like some of your children, loves to watch TV. You would think, that, there for a while, you would think uh, from our friends that we just let him watch TV all the time, that he carries you know, his iPod in his pocket or whatever, and is watching TV, he's watching it in his room at night, he's watching it you know, while he's in the restroom, while he's eating dinner. You would think that he would watch TV that much because that's all he talked about for a while. One of the things that Megan and I began to realize is that Caden had selective hearing. So he would be watching his show, Octonauts or whatever it would be, uh, with his warm cup of milk in the morning, his coffee. And uh, he'd be watching his show, and, and you could say anything to him, and he wouldn't hear it. Unless you said something that he wanted to hear, then all of a sudden he was perky and he could hear it. So he'd be like, hey, Caden, go, uh, go clean your, your clothes up or, or you know, go clean up the toy room for us. And you could say chocolate. And he'd be like, what? what? I mean, like, what's going on here? I mean, he would, hear, <laughs> he would hear what he wanted to hear. Uh, I would propose that, uh, that just corporately as God's people, um, we, we have selective hearing to the cries of the oppressed. And it looks very unique in Atlanta. It looks very unique uh, in Gwinnett County because for the first time in Atlanta's uh, history, uh, there is more uh, poverty outside of the perimeter than there is inside of the perimeter. Um, the suburbs that, that folks moved to in the 60s and 70s, they're uh, 
they're not the same suburbs anymore. You know, the, 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 I'll put it frankly, the white flight that happened in the 60s that really made up the first ring of suburbs in Atlanta, well, it's not the same anymore. God has brought the nations. He's brought the poor. He's, he's brought this melting pot to Gwinnett County, and I love it. And my prayer is that New City Church would hear the cries of the oppressed around us. See, we don't have to go downtown to serve the homeless and pat ourselves on the back. We could just open our eyes to what's all around us and just hear and see what God is doing in the midst of the oppressed right now. And I, I, I think that one of, the, one of the reasons, and I'm speaking to myself, I'm, this is not like a, hey, y'all get, y'all get your act together kind of thing. I'm, I'm speaking from experience, I'm speaking to my, I'm preaching to myself here. I think one of the reasons, I'll, I'll put it in, in the first person, I'm afraid, and one of the reasons that I have, uh, I've become deaf to the, this tone of oppression around me is because I, I'm afraid to enter into the story of those I don't know how to fix. I'm afraid to enter into their story when I don't know what to do, how to make it better. Because I'm a good old American boy and I like to fix things. You know, God hasn't called us to fix anything. God hasn't given any one of you the power to fix anything. God is the only one who fixes anything. And he's pleased to use us in that process. So what would it look like for us to get in tune with the frequency of God's heart, especially among the oppressed in our community, what would that look like? I don't know, but I want to share a story with you that I that I, I heard about this this week from a friend of mine. He he uh, he he talked about this this uh, th- this these two guys in Virginia that wanted to uh, start like a Christian kind of retreat center, and so they bought all this property and they built this uh, really nice retreat center. And um, as they were exploring the hundreds of acres that they purchased, they came upon something that absolutely. Um, kind of astonished them and, and caused them to fear, honestly. They came across a slave graveyard in the middle of the property. And, and the two guys, basically, they had, they had two options. And the first option sounded really good, which was this, hey, let's bulldoze this thing over and let's act like we never found it. Let's act like this thing is not here, we never found it, we don't know what happened. Let's hide this thing, let's cover it up. Or the second option was this, let's grieve and lament over what happened, over the atrocity of what happened that God's people did against God's people, even in our own country. And let's look to God to fix it, to heal, to make it right. And so they invited people in from all over the country. And they had a service outside of that graveyard, and they just, they just wept together. They just lamented together over the sin that had occurred and they sought God together to make it right. Church, what would it look like for us to hear the cries of the oppressed? We don't have to fix it. We can enter in and not know the answer. That's why God has given us the Holy Spirit. What would it look like for us to not feel like we have to fix it? The second thing that I think has made us tone deaf is so culturally a part of our makeup that we can't even realize. And it's this idea of radical individualism. We don't have a real concept for corporate sin. We, this, it's why I say things like this uh, to myself a lot of times. Um, you know, when I look at someone that, is, that has fallen on hard times, that's, that's really poor, maybe they've got pushed out of their house, or maybe they're living in an extended stay now, or they don't have money for food, and I say, man, you know, if they just work harder, 
If they just work a little harder, they wouldn't be so lazy. Maybe they could, maybe they could take care of themselves. Inside, that's what I'm thinking on the inside. I'm just being very honest, unplugged with you guys this morning. I think those things, and I don't think about the fact that maybe there's some systemic structures that have intentionally oppressed a group of people for the benefit of other people. Because that's what was happening in Nehemiah 5, right? I mean, the working class was building the walls. They didn't have any food to eat. So the, 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 the more wealthy Jews say, hey, let's tax these guys because they're going to borrow money for us. They've got to pay the tax. They need grain. Let's take advantage and seek our gain in this position now. Because in the kingdom, we've got, we've got to flip the way we see things. In the kingdom, it's not us and it's not them. It's not the wealthy Christians and the poor Christians. It's not the, the white Christians and whatever race of Christians. It's always we. It's always we. And so when sins and oppression occur against one group of Christians, they occur to all of us. It's always we. Our view of the kingdom of God has to grow. It's this, this sense of radical individualism that's really come from the Enlightenment and has stemmed into American culture, every part of American culture really from our inception, has even affected the way that we see sin. So it's the reason why a lot of times when I'm meeting with someone and I'm, and I'm talking to them about the claims of the gospel, and I, and I say, you know, that, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we've all sinned. And my kids, they're like, even like babies are sinners? And I'm like, you know, the Bible says that that even, even those that, that, are, that are born were born into sin. We're all sinners. And they're like, well, they haven't even done anything yet. Well, we, the thing we failed to realize is we've, we've inherited a sin nature. We've adopted a sin nature. It's come to us uh, because all have fallen in Adam. And so we have a hard time believing that, that we need to be redeemed when we can't see our sin. So this idea of individualism kind of creeps in there. Friends, on the flip side of that, it's why we have a very hard time receiving the grace of God in Jesus. As Romans 5 talks about how all have fallen in Adam and all who believe in Jesus are redeemed through Jesus' grace. I didn't do anything to earn God's grace. It can't be mine. I didn't work for it. How can, how can that grace be true of me? Well, because all fell in one man. All who would believe in Jesus will be raised in another man, Jesus. The sense of radical individualism it, it encompasses everything that we see and do in our culture. And I think that's the other, the other thing that kind of makes us tone deaf to the needs around us because we think as long as we're taking care of, of me and mine, then, then things are good to go. Um, so my prayer has been that we would, we would grow in our ability to hear the cries of the oppressed, that, that, our, that our, the frequencies of our, that our ears hear would be broadened to include uh, those that are in the kingdom that look a lot differently and live a lot differently than we do. The second thing is this, as we keep going through Nehemiah, God calls us to give a voice to the voiceless. So Nehemiah 5, uh, 7 uh, through 9 says this right here. I took counsel with myself and I, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and I said to them, you are exacting interest from, from his brother. And I, and I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Shouldn't you live in the fear of God? 
You see, what, what's happening in Nehemiah? When Nehemiah begins to speak up for those that said, hey, we don't have a voice. He gives a voice to the voiceless. He begins to pursue justice after he's heard the cries of the oppressed. And he's been merciful to them. And I think it's conviction that moves Nehemiah to respond. Because who would want to enter into that uncomfortable situation? Who would want to get in the middle of that? Only someone who's following God, I can tell you that, because God's the only one that's going to be able to get him out of it. God's the only one that's going to be able to bring uh, his grace and redemption in that situation. But Nehemiah had to be near to the people to hear the cries and give a voice. He, he didn't ignore uh, the cry or walk to the other side of the road or move to a different neighborhood. But he heard the cries of the oppressed. I can't help but think of this parable that Jesus shares uh, about the Good Samaritans. If you have a, a Bible, uh, turn to uh, Luke chapter 10. If not, it'll be on the screen. I'm going to read this for us, and we're just going to see a beautiful parallel of what God calls us uh, to here. It starts in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? You're a lawyer. How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, oh, you've answered correctly, Mr. Lawyer. Do this and you will live. Okay, well, that, that doesn't appear to be enough. So he goes on, uh, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who? Who is this my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and he poured oil and wine on him, and then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, whatever more you spend, I will, I will repay when I come back. And Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Jesus, in the context of this, Jesus is telling his disciples that they'll be blessed if they receive the kingdom of God as these children have. Because right before this, he'd sent out the disciples and they came back praising God because even the demons submitted to them. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa you guys have got it wrong. You should rejoice because your names are in the book of life. You should rejoice like these little children. And so this lawyer responds in this situation, and he says, hey, like, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? Anytime we come to God and we say, what do I have to do? You never want to know the answer to that question, okay? You never want to know the answer because it's something that you can never do. It's just like Micah 6, 8. We can't live up to that. The Israelites couldn't live up to that. It leaves this gaping hole within us. What do I have to do? Well, you don't want to know because it looks like that cross right there. That's what you'll have to do. 
what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, okay, I know the law cognitively. I know what the law says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. I've been repeating that since I was a kid. I know what the law says. And Jesus looks at him and he says, oh, do you know what the law says in your heart? Do you really know what the law says? And then the man says, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus shares this parable with him. Jesus had to get after the idol in this man's heart. Because it wasn't enough to know the transactional information in his mind. To spout out the right words to inherit eternal life. He was after his heart. And what does he say? What's the idol he's going after? He's going after the idol of self. He's going after the idol of self in this man. And so I find it interesting that this is a, this is a Jewish man uh, because he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's probably a Jewish man. Uh, the Levite and the priest, Jewish people, they would have had a responsibility to care for their own. Yet these are the men that pass him up. And then you see with the Samaritan, the guy that has, that's first hated by the Jews, secondly, uh, has no responsibility to care for the Jewish people, is the one that shows mercy. I find that very interesting. Because really what was happening is that the the, Pharisee, or the, the Levite and the priest, what they said in their mind as they walked on the other side of the road when they passed by the Samaritan is they said, this man is not worthy of mercy. This man's not worthy. So we're just going to keep walking by. I don't want to get unclean by this guy. I mean, he's half dead. He's not worthy. I've got to keep walking here. And the Samaritan had a more humble view of himself, certainly. He stops and he gets off his animal and puts the Samaritan on him. On his animal, he pays, he takes care of them. He, he relieves the cries of the oppression that this man is experiencing. He physically relieves uh, his pain. And then he begins to, to lead him in this process of, of stabil, uh, stabilization and, and coming back to, to being able to stand on his own two feet again. I find it so interesting here. In his approach. Because I see a theme uh, that's happening in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, uh, if we were to look at the last, Nehemiah 5, we would look at the last five verses. Nehemiah pays out of his own pocket uh, the, the money that will be required to set 150 people around his table for 12 years to care for them. He doesn't take the king's portion because then the people would be taxed, they'd be oppressed. And so he steps in and he, he, he absorbs the cost of that. And so we see that there are, really two, um, there are really two ways for us to give voice as a church. And, and one of these ways the church at large, the Big C Church, is really good at. And the other, the other part we're really kind of bad at. So, so how do we give voice to the voiceless? The first thing is relief. So we notice in the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, and in the story of Nehemiah 5 that there's relief given. There's immediate oppression. Something has to be done. There's relief given to the oppressed person. So this is why in our community we see lots of people that are willing to uh, give money, willing to give uh, food, willing to give clothing to those that are oppressed, willing to uh, help them uh, maybe find another place to live. They're willing to help out. They're willing to relieve. And this is a good thing. The problem is that it cannot stop here. God didn't stop there with us when we were helpless and on our own. He didn't stop there. 
The second thing is that there has to be this developmental work that, that helps the oppressed get out of the oppressive situations and be able to stand on their own feet. And so that's why we see Nehemiah taking the next step to, to care for the people. That's why we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan uh, caring for the Jewish man that fell among robbers. And he says, hey, you know, whatever, whatever else I had to pay for this guy, charge it to my account. I'm going to pay for that. I know it's coming at a cost to me, but I, I feel compelled to have compassion on this man. And I would say, church, that this is the hard work of discipleship is what this is. Because you can get in and you can hear the story of the oppressed all around us. And church, we don't have to look hard to, to see it. It's all around us. We just got to open our eyes and our ears. We can, we can see what's going on and we can give of our stuff our material possessions, but developmental work calls us to give ourselves away. And I've seen this happen in this church already, this young one-year-old church. I've already seen this happening, and I want to encourage it to happen more and more. It's, the, it's, it's when there's a family that we meet that, that attends school here is in an extended stay hotel, and they need help uh, finding a place. They need furniture. I mean, their apartment was made up of all of our furniture, Right? There's, there was a situation where a young man was, had gotten in, in trouble with the law and one of you went in the middle of the night and picked this guy up and took him to dinner and just sat with him and heard him. I mean, these things are happening. It's a beautiful thing. I want to see us continue to give our lives away in really discipleship to the oppressed in our community. And we've got to do that by being near and hearing the cries and being willing to obey God. Lastly, we're called to seek restoration through the Spirit. We're not, we're not called to control what restoration looks like. We're, we're called to seek it and let the Holy Spirit lead through that. And in Nehemiah, I'm going to read Nehemiah 5, 10 through 13 for us. Let's see how this plays out with the Israelites. Moreover, I and my brothers, verse 10, uh, and my servants are, are lending them money and grain and let us abandon this ex exacting of interest. Return to them this day their very fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them and we will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, no, we're not doing this. No, they didn't say that. They said, amen. And praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Isn't that amazing? Nehemiah heard from the Lord, he obeyed him. These jokers actually repented. Isn't it amazing what the Holy Spirit can do? I was reminded of this... Uh, Probably two and a half years ago, a friend of mine uh, that I'd met here in Atlanta uh, was walking down a very dark road of um, uh, infidelity, um, extramarital relationships, and was getting ready to move in with the lady. And, uh, and this seemed like just way out of left field, and he was just so comfortable with it. And I was like, I was just, I was a wreck on the inside because I was like, I feel like I got to fix this, but I can't. And one of my buddies said, hey, you know what Matthew 18 calls you to do, don't you? It calls you to go and confront your brother. And then to trust the Holy Spirit to turn his heart back to himself. And so this guy's 20 years older than me, 
maybe 25, and I, I'm terrified walking into this meeting at Starbucks with this guy. And we sat down there, and it's like we're usually cutting up and having a good time, and it's just kind of all business at this time. I said, bro, I just am so afraid uh, of what you must think about God right now because you are so comfortable in your sin. You are so comfortable to absolutely turn your back away from God and walk in your own ways. I'm just afraid of what your life is going to turn out to be if this is the road you continue on. And I was just like terrified. And I sat there and I prayed for him and we left. It was kind of awkward. It was kind of weird. And I kid you not, two weeks later, he calls me. He says, man, I'm breaking it off. I'm turning back. I got to get out of this thing. He's like, thank you for speaking the truth to me in that time. And I I didn't want to do that. You think Nehemiah wanted to do this? You think he wanted to go to these, these Jewish people, these wealthy Jewish people, and say, look, what you guys are doing is wrong. He gave a voice to the voiceless, and he trusted the Holy Spirit to do his part, which was to fix things, to draw sinners back to himself. Friends, when we hear the cries of the oppressed, the Lord is going to convict us. I can tell you that. He's going to convict us at certain points to give a voice to the voiceless, maybe to, to, to have somebody in your house Maybe to help someone pay for something or to invite them into your life in some way, shape, or form. And we're going to be tempted to say no because we're going to want to fix it. And God's going to say, just trust me. Just trust me and let me do the work. I, uh, I think about this and I, I think about Nehemiah 5 and I'm tempted to think that it's kind of a descriptive passage of what could happen what has happened in history, but I think it's also prescriptive for us. I think we see this in that parable of the, the good Samaritan. And uh, my sin nature is to look at folks who sin differently than me, right? And to, and to say, uh, you know, I've got to stay out of that because that's just, that's just a little too far-fetched there. And then I'm reminded of what the grace of God actually is. And the truth is this, not one time has God ever given me or anyone else in this room what we deserve. Not one time. He has never given us what we deserve. Do you know what? He gave Jesus what we deserve, though, didn't he? Not one time has he given us what we deserve. We were dead. We were buried in sin. We were impoverished in our spirit. We were held captive by our flesh. We were orphaned by the power of sin. And yet, while we were still sinning, still in the act of sinning, he sent Jesus to bear the punishment of our sin and to show mercy to those that were worthless. It wasn't because there was something special about us that he chose us and that he sent Jesus. It was because he was, he was empowered by the motive of his love. And that's true for each and every one of us in here. Look, there's nothing that's special about us, but God has shown us mercy. It's, it's grace this morning that you're in this gym the sanctuary, and you're hearing about the riches of God's good news. It's mercy that God has shown us. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix anyone. And this is the truth of what God has invited us into. We were the the crippled man on the side of the road, and Jesus was the unlikely Messiah who bandaged us up and has set us on our way and given us new hearts. And he invites all of us to turn to him to turn to the, the, the loving kindness of his mercy and grace and to be filled up with that. And then it's, it's, it's then that our activity for God will be useful to the kingdom. 
because our identity is in Jesus. So let that rest in your hearts today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I pray that you just continue to do a good work in us and that you would help us to hear the cries of the oppressed and give a voice uh, to the voiceless all while we trust your spirit to do good work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.